This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition on the of On the Margin. I am joined, as always, by my usual intrepid co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko, and we've got special guest Dan Tapiero on the show. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, great to see you, Grace. And Dan, you get to experience the, the sock reveal. Real quickly, just get out of the way. So I, I climb up on the chair and I show the sock. So I, I got the, the crypto winner, you know, the um, cold storage. I, I, I went back and forth this morning on the... RIP Bitcoin and the crypto winner. I went with crypto winner because because we're there. And, and now we're not going to talk about crypto. We're going to talk about macro. All right, guys. Uh, got a lot of really interesting charts to go through. Guys, just, just uh, to give you the overall rundown here. Obviously, the FOMC happened yesterday. There was a 75 basis point hike. Um, and we're starting to see carnage kind of ripple out into uh, both more general financial markets and then obviously crypto specifically. Um, so we've got a bunch of great charts here. I want to just start by showing this was kind of an interesting visualization of Fed hikes uh, for the past 30 years. So you can see, obviously, mostly what the Fed has been doing is cutting for the past 30 years. Uh, and there's only been one 75 basis point hike. And that's uh, so we're entering into pretty rarefied air here and uh, markets are starting to respond. Uh, so, Dan, uh, why, why don't we kick this off here? You set, oh, sent over this um, this chart, right? Let us know what are we looking at here? Why did you think this was so important to talk about? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of uh, charts that we used to come up with uh, when I was managing a macro portfolio. Um, and broadly what this says is that um, it's looking at a rate of change, okay, in um, oil and in interest rates over the last, let's just say, six to nine months. It's showing you, it's an index composed of market indicators that reflect a tightening in liquidity, okay? Oil price doubles, mortgage rates double, the dollar has a giant move, okay? Now, what do those things mean? How do you look at that move, that nine-month move, versus similar moves in history? And what you see post-COVID, of course, is massive easing. You can see that all the way up there. And also now a destruction of liquidity that is unprecedented going back to, what is the date there? Let's take a look. 1984. Back to 1984. You have never had such an extreme um, market tightening. Uh, it's almost like you call this a monetary conditions index, a rate of change of a monetary conditions index. And this about came out about six, seven weeks ago. Um, and... Look, it shows to me that uh, basically the the interest rate hikes that are priced into the markets are way beyond anything that is needed to slow growth and inflation. And maybe, Mark, I'm stealing the thunder of this conversation a little bit, but, um, you know, the fact that the Fed has already said they're going to do another 50, they did 75, they might do another 75, um, I, I think is is going to be very, very tough for all markets, um, you know, in the next sort of three, four month period. Uh, I would say that the Fed boxed themselves in a little bit by saying, uh, you know, they're going to wait for clear and obvious uh, information that growth and inflation has dropped. And what that tr probably means is three, four months of CPI dropping, of GDP or ISM getting down to lower numbers. And the problem with that 
is that they're acting way after the fact. The markets have already tightened dramatically more than ever, more than they have before um, in terms of rate of change. And you can't shock a system like this. I don't care what the inflation rate is. Um, you just can't do it. I think this is going to be seen in retrospect as dramatic policy error. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, is that, you know, th this happens, you know, over the course of the last 30 years. Um, this has happened at times because the Fed uh, is a board of academics. They're not market practitioners. Powell is not a market, is not a macro market practitioner. He was a private equity guy. Yes, they have lots of information at their hands, um, you know, 300 economists and all of that. Um, but for whatever reason, they don't really believe the markets. They don't really trust the markets. All you have to do is sit back now. You don't need to raise rates to 4%. They say 4% is March Fed funds uh, future. Uh, I don't think we're getting to four. I don't think we're getting to three. Uh, I just think the next three months are going to potentially be you know, dangerous. I'm sorry. And last thing is that there are parts of the financial markets that are already freezing up, i.e. Yeah. no liquidity. Reminds me of August 07 when Bernanke said he was more concerned about inflation than uh, more concerned about inflation than he was that the market had had, fro uh, had frozen. So the market collapsed and then Bernanke uh, uh, reversed into August and cut the discount rate. Unfortunately, uh, even if the market collapses, it doesn't feel to me like we're going to get a discount rate cut. Um, the Fed is just, it's taking us into sort of a diabolical area here the next few months. Okay, so let me stop. Nah, diabolical is, is the word. Look, I, diabolical is the word. And, and you know, I, I went back and forth with Steve McClure, McClure this morning on this, and he said the unintended consequences Mike, scratch the un. This is not unintended. This is, I believe, clear intention. This is about breaking stuff. And I'll give you an example of what Dan's talking about, Mike, on the, uh, I just called you Mike, it's Michael. Um, uh, <laughs> I was just, for me, it's Michael. Uh, you know, Friday, for only the fifth time in history, mortgage-backed security market went no bid. Let that, 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 let that linger. No bid. There were zero bids for mortgage-backed securitizations. None. Zero. It happened once in 1994, uh, once in uh, 2007, and twice in 2008. And they, they were indicators of the global financial crisis. That, that chart that Dan shared, to me shows not one, but two policy errors that will go down in history, I believe as bad as the policy errors uh, of 1937, raising rates from zero to 25 basis points, taking garden variety recession, turning into Great Depression, as bad as Smoot-Hawley in 31, uh, as bad as the Fed tightening uh, at the end of, of the market crash in 29. And that spike up is the problem. That's what's caused the inflation, air quotes. It's not inflation, it's currency devaluation. And now 
they've pulled all of that out and more. The market has. It, it did its job from the central bank jawboning. And things are breaking. High yield bond market, as we are sitting here recording this, is breaking. I mean, and, and there is going to be, I, I, look, I think this is 2001, 2002, all over again. Enron, WorldCom. I mean, massive companies are going to vaporize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just to guys, if you're if you're if you're listening along and not following us via video here, we've got some supporting charts here. So we're looking at the the um, percentage premium, right? The the that HYG, right, which is kind of the premier uh, high yield index for for U.S. corporate debt, right? The trades at a, at a premium or a discount to NAV, and that's falling into uh, pretty severely negative territory. Uh, there's also the move index, which is essentially that's the creation of Harley Bassman, uh, right? This is kind of like the VIX, but for bonds, we're looking at uh, you know pretty historic levels of spiking here. Not quite back to 2020, but this chart is two days old. I, I don't know; it, it might be there, uh, you know, as of today. Mark, let me uh, just ask. I'm sorry, Mike. I just did, yeah. did. I didn't go through every word of the Fed statement like I used to 20 years ago. Did they even mention any of the markets freezing up and anything? Did they mention any markets? Anything? No. I didn't so, think so. Such, such an important point, Dan. Such an important point. They didn't point. even mention it, right? No. Was, and okay. it's it reminds me of, and you said it, right? These are not market people. I mean, the, the, the stat that I talk about all the time is the Fed, right? Which is populated by hundreds of PhD educated, like you would think, smart people have predicted future GDP growth every quarter for however many years, it's like 268 quarters, they're over. They've never gotten it right. I mean, think about that. We could flip a coin and get it right half the time, but they've never gotten it right. And so what, what to, your, to your Dan's point right now, what they did yesterday by just not acknowledging any of of the fires raging around us, it's literally like the ostrich. The mm. ostrich is sitting out there, minding its own business, and the lion comes out of the savanna, and the ostrich turns its back on the lion, lays its head on the sand, and pretends that the lion can't see it. The lion well, still so, eats the yeah, ostrich. I, I the ostrich just doesn't see it happen. They're just they're just academics, and they're looking at lagging data. The Philly Fed dropped quite a bit. All these sort of leading indicators. Um, you know, we could go through some of these charts. I mean, yeah, that's a, all the leading indicators are suggesting growth um, that you know that is sort of back to or worse than 08 levels. We have some other charts. I mean. You know, the housing market, I think the next six to nine months. And I, I put something out on Twitter a few weeks ago, just to posit, it is possible that in retrospect, um, we get a major movement against the Fed uh, in the next sort of six to nine months. It's not today. When people realize they haven't been sensitive to market conditions, um, you know, if we really do enter this air pocket where, where many things stop trading, you are damaging you know, all of these pension funds, um, all of the insurance companies, all the institutional money that's out there, 60, 40, 70, 30 allocated between equity and bonds. What we haven't said is that it's not just that equities are, you know, are down a lot. Equities have had the worst start to the year 
Uh, I think it's the second worst start of the last 75 years. And not only that, is that the bond market has also collapsed. And so if you're long uh, bonds and you're long stocks, normally in years past, your bonds would help offset your losses. You've gotten double whammy. You've gotten killed. It's been the worst you know, period for bonds, I think in the last, you know, certainly over 50 years. So the losses that are, that people have, uh, maybe they don't realize yet, uh, they will realize. And I think people six months from now are gonna question, you know, what was the Fed doing? Um, and look, I, I think this is a, an outlier. I don't really expect this, but there is a view out there, at least among some of the people I speak with that, you know, maybe a monetary policy that's guided by sort of mathematical rules, uh, a currency that's based on, you know, mathematical rules uh, can do better than, you know, this constant human intervention. And of course, that's, or I'm referencing Bitcoin, um, but, you know, things maybe have to get a lot worse for people to realize that the, you know, the, the reliance on human intervention uh, is just creates a type of volatility that I think is just too much for institutions and people to handle. That's yeah. really, you know, and I don't care how much the market went up in the previous few years. People say, well, it's up a lot. Um, you know, Greenspan in 94 learned, okay, that you can't shock a market. All right. 94, I remember like yesterday, led to Mexico uh, blowing up in early 95. Yep. Um, and what that means now to me is that we de facto are on course for a, a kind of blow up. And I don't know where it's going to come from, but whoever's most leveraged is, I think, going to get crushed the most. Um, and if some people think that's in crypto, uh, I don't think it's going to be crypto. Even if there are leveraged pockets in crypto, uh, crypto is the only market in the world that can handle volatility, right? We've had Bitcoin, the greatest returning asset over the last 12 years, over 200% annualized with seven drawdowns of 70%. And here we are. So we've already gotten crushed in crypto, um, the underlying market, some of them down between 15 and 80%. And the market is still functioning just fine. Okay, people aren't thrilled with where it is. There's no discontinuity. Yes, there's less liquidity in that market today, but that market, because it's an early stage market can handle extreme volatility and has many, many times. The other markets cannot. No, that's a critical, it's, a, it's such a critical point that it's, it's, it's about fragility, right? And it's about reflexivity. And look, when your 401k turns into a 301k, it's a bad day. When it turns into a 201k, it's a really bad day. If it turns into a 101K, now you're totally, you're done. And the average person doesn't have much savings. They don't have much margin of safety. And so this, this sinister plot, you know, it's sinister Saturday when we usually re release these, and so I gotta get the sinister word in there. But this sinister plot to impoverish the masses is really- well, Mark, I, you know, come on. I, I don't think that, you know, Jay Powell and those guys, I don't think that they're specifically planning to impoverish the masses. I mean, I just, I, I just again, I, uh, I, I think that they're, they're, yeah. they're really trying to do 
they're, they see an 8% CPI and they're panicked. Okay, this is all, it's, they're panicked. And this is, you know, maybe they're having pressure from people. The guys, there are guys out there calling for, some guy yesterday uh, called for, you know, a hike to 4%, total madness. There are people who have specific personal reasons. You know, I see some of these older guys, the guys over 60, 65, they want maybe a crushing so that they get to buy assets cheap. Yeah. I don't think that's the right thing. Um, the only thing, one second, the only thing that to me, you know, I get a little bit is, I mean, look, there are political implications and there's no question at the moment that the Democrats in the midterm elections are going to suffer the greatest defeat. I mean, maybe since Reagan, they're going to get completely annihilated. So if there are any Democrats listening to us here, guys, uh, you're going to be completely annihilated because over the next six months, things are going to get worse. Um, the conversation that Biden or whoever it is that's in that White House that is doing stuff should have with the Federal Reserve is, whoa, guys. Um, but I think it's too late, to be honest. They box themselves in. And so the, the benefit is we are going to have, a, I think, a pretty uh, strong uh, Republican majority now in the Congress. And again, that should be good for capitalism and good for business uh, down the road. So. I mean, it, it, there's no silver lining, but if you want to make one up, um, I think. Yeah, yeah. look, I, I'm going to take the under on the good news. Um, you know, we just entered this morning. We entered uh, Bluto Blutarskiville on, <laughs> on GDP. 0.0. Yeah. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. So that is, that is what the U.S. economy is. It's fat drunk and stupid. And and we are now definitely in recession. That number is going to go way lower than 0.0, .0 for Q2. And whoever's in, in, in power in D.C. has no shot at fixing this. It is so broken. Because, Dan, how many rate hikes are going to lower the price of oil? How many rate hikes are going to fix the wheat crop this year? How many rate hikes are going to get China to open up their ports and let the ships fill up with goods so the global trade can resume? I, I don't think the Fed has any, I think it has 0, 0.0 power to affect any sort of change. I agree with you. They are panicking and they read the headlines and they're like, oh my God, the, you know, inflation's so high. I went to dinner with my little guy who just came in and, and made those, those crazy noises. Um, uh, but I went to dinner with him last night after lacrosse. We had a bowl of spaghetti and a lasagna, okay, and two drinks. $50. $50. Yeah, I know. But I'm in Chapel starts, Hill. I'm not in New York. I know. But look, this is coming. This is, they don't have to do anything. And the oil price is going to be significantly lower by the end of the year because there's been massive demand destruction that is in the pipeline that is baked in the cake. So my guess is typically the oil market will peak into the end of the driving season and then goodbye. And yep. uh, oil, I think will be sub hundred easily by the end of the year. The, the amount of demand destruction and the speed at which it's coming is faster than we've seen, uh, probably will happen faster than 08. My job really is, and, and what I've done my whole career is not talk about what is today, it's only just to talk about what's coming in the next six to 12 months. And this is going to be especially severe. 
Um, so I'm not worried about the oil price. The wheat price, uh, I used to be very focused on agriculture. I'm not worried about the wheat price at all. Uh, you know, just so that you know, I mean, the, the percentage of the, the cost of wheat that goes into the loaf of bread that you purchase at the supermarket is very small. When you buy, go to the supermarket, you pay three bucks for a loaf of bread. Uh, I think it's less than 5% of it is attributed to the price of wheat. You pay more for, you know, the plastic bag that it's wrapped in, the, right. the guy who drops it off at the store, his insurance, the gas for his car. I mean, look, I, you know, I, it, it, it's about oil, but, um, you know, they're killing, and you hear this often, they're, they're killing the patient, i.e. the economy, to cure the sugar addiction. And, <laughs> um, right. you know, there's a sugar addiction, okay. So what you do is, is you slowly take the sugar addiction out. You have some faith in the forecast and in leading indicators or which, of which there are many. If you look at the sentiment indicators and you look at the levels of, uh, I've showed you something from that fantastic uh, BA, BA uh, Merrill Lynch fund manager survey, here it is. Um, Profit expectations are already lowest. What's the follow? You know, this shows a degree of super negative sentiment. You normally get crashes from levels of extreme uh, oversoldness. If you see 08, we were low for a while. You didn't bottom until AUK 08, but it stayed low for a while. So this is not good. If you go back, there was another one, net expecting stronger economy. People not expecting a stronger economy. Um, you know, it's uh, it's that means that there isn't sort of liquidity there um, to buy, you know, the kind of weakness that we're seeing now. Uh, people are just going to stay close to home. Uh, I mean, Stan said it the other day. I, I, I read a blurb about his interview, you know, just sitting on our hands, just like we are, um, you know, at 10T. I think there's going to be fallout. Uh, and people who are leveraged are going to be in trouble and they're going to be discounts. Uh, you're going to be able to buy equity of companies that can really grow a ton at very large discounts. Um, and the people who are sitting on cash, uh, who are still, you know, making cash, uh, are going to also, those companies are going to be acquiring some of these guys who are in trouble. So I don't know, next next six months i just don't you know three four months i just don't see how we how we get out of it the fed's playbook um has set us on course for demand destruction yeah and i don't think the markets have even started to respond to that like supposedly growth is still robust according to uh yeah. you know the <laughs> yeah yeah janet and janet and jay uh want to tell us how how strong the economy is and that's because, you know, weak is the new strong. It's like orange is the new black. Well, we need things to weaken up. I mean, unfortunately, they just have to weaken up to a degree that shocks the Fed out of their current path. The one good thing that he did say yesterday, Powell, is that, um, you know, the Fed will remain flexible. So remain flexible. He sees these charts, hopefully, and he's saying, OK, things are not that good now. I'll remain flexible. Um, but I don't think you can, you know, hang your hat on that, on that one phrase, right? If you're, if you, if you think this is a good place to sort of wade into the markets. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. 
In plain English, Block Daemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking. Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Gotta click the link at the bottom, otherwise I won't get my credit. Yeah. Guys, I'd be curious, you know, we're talking a lot about the Fed. Obviously, they're the most important global central bank, but other central banks are, you know, struggling as well. And there's some signs of stress abroad, right? So the ECB just held uh, on Wednesday of this week, so that's yesterday is the day of recording, uh, this emergency meeting, you know, you're starting to see signs of stress, right? There's the benchmark, you know, the spread between, uh, you know, the German benchmark and the, the, the Italian benchmark, which is blowing out, which is typically a sign of stress for them. You know, the Bank of Japan is struggling to defend the, you know, 25 basis point, you know, yield curve control target that they've set for themselves, which I would have thought would be impossible. I think they're like 67% of the JGB market uh, and they have an infinite bid, uh, you know, but they're still struggling there as well. Um, you know, there have been recently been surprised. I think the Swiss National Bank, they had a surprise yesterday. They did a 50 basis point hike. Uh, Australia's central bank, India's central bank uh, tightened more than folks thought they would. This is a global um, thing that's going on here. I'm curious, how much... Uh, do you, do you view the importance of what's going on kind of in the U.S. bond market um, and stocks versus kind of globally what's happening? Go ahead, Mark. No, look, I, it, it, it is absolutely all interconnected. You know, you, you see these coordinated moves right around WEF every, every year. And, and I think, you know, they all get together and they kind of go around and say, OK, who's turned in the hot seat? And somebody gets picked to be the, the strong currency. Because what every Western nation wants is a weak currency because it's a beggar thy neighbor world and, and we're in a race to the bottom. So the weaker your currency, the more you can sell, the more exports you can do. You know, the, the euro was created to bring in as many crappy currencies to weaken the euro relative to the Deutschmark because they needed to sell cars and machine tools uh, and compete with with, China, with Japan in, in places like China. So I, I think it is a, a globally mandated, uh, and I said, that's why I think it's much more sinister. I, I actually don't think it's unintended. I actually believe this is the only way out, right, is when, when you're in such a world of hurt from a debt perspective and you've, you've turned capitalism into cronyism and all the people at the top own all the companies that are making all the money and they're getting all the contracts, you know, it's, it's like we just sent $40 billion to Ukraine. Guaranteed, most of that money ends up at companies where there's relationships with congressmen and senators all over the hill, um, we could have used that money way better for you know people in the United States that to go to bed hungry. Um, so I mean, there's there's just so much graft corruption, and I 
you know, you look what's what's going on in Canada with uh, restrictions, and now certain classes of citizens are not going to be as Canadian. You know, it all seems very interconnected to me, and and very wrong. Well, I'm I'm sort of uh, <clears throat> I think that's possible, but I'm I'm less focused on that because I think. Look, they all cut rates together. We have negative real rates everywhere. Um, and, you know, rates have been negative in Switzerland for several years, the same in Germany. Um, I think that, you know, they're taking a more cautious approach because there are already indicators. Um, if you look at German consumer confidence, which, Mike, I sent you a chart of, um, you know, if you look at that, uh it's already collapsed and they haven't even properly raised rates so nope. i think that they're more sensitive also you know i was never thinking that the fed would be this aggressive just because they would be aware of all of the gross outstanding debt um i haven't even i haven't done the math yet but of course the cost to the us government and also to to all of the debt holders out there is significantly greater um, many people starting to talk about how much your mortgage payment is going to, it's doubled uh, on, a, on a strict sort of 30-year note, uh, on a 30-year, uh, you know, uh, your, the amount of monthly mortgage payment on a 30-year mortgage has doubled in the last year. So I don't know, you know, and many people have floating debt out there. Many people have expected the rates to stay low and they have leverage to the front end, actually, prime yep. plus a rate. I, I just think that when you adjust up, you have to do it slowly. We learned that lesson in 94. Greenspan set the table um, in 95 for what I think was probably, and I say this often, the most important uh, speech of a central banker of the last 30, 40 years. Um, and he said in this speech in the summer of 95, there will come a time when inflation is still rising but we will ignore it because we are sensitive to the forward indicators on growth. That sensitivity, that understanding of nuance in the middle of 95 set the table for a massive uh, bull market over the following five years. You can say whatever you want about the bubble in 99 and the sell-off afterwards. Um, you know, I, you know that's, that's a different matter. But from 87 to 94, it was very... Uh, uh, very slow growth. The U.S. real estate in 93-94 sector had been completely crushed. Yep. And basically, you know, that shift in understanding, Greenspan, who had done the work himself back then, the guy used to, between 4 and 6 a.m., sit in a bathtub looking over economic data, he had his own view about the future. Okay, this guy, this Fed, does not have their own view about the future. It looks to me like he's following some I don't know, some mid-level economists' uh, opinions uh, about like what's happening today slash being pressured by whoever it is to get inflation under control instead of understanding what Greenspan understood in the middle of 95, which is that the market, okay, in 90, end of 93 to 94, had already tightened enough. He didn't need to keep tightening, right? And then there was a blow-up in, in Mexico that guaranteed a massive slowdown in inflation. All right. So, you know, is Powell waiting for the blow up? I, I, I don't even know, but he's going to get one somewhere. And yeah. it's not going to be crypto if we could just adjust to that, because 
crypto has blown up many times. It blows up every 18 months. Uh, people talk about, oh, it's gonna be there. There might be a liquidity run. You might have certain people go under, but you know, that's what happens when you're over leveraged. Uh, you know, the anyone that's a hundred times leveraged or whatever it is, and they're all gonna blow up. Crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, this is the only asset class I've ever seen where you absolutely do not need any leverage to become, you know, crazy wealthy, okay? And so um, people who have overstepped themselves and, and leveraged up, uh, they're gonna go away. And, um, you know, and the system, the crypto system, the digital asset ecosystem is gonna absorb it just fine. Um, and I actually think that as the old world contracts, you'll have liquidity leaving that world as the alpha opportunities, I think, continue to, to drop. And as the, the old world becomes increasingly volatile, you can't rely on a Fed that, you know, is not really, uh, I, I think, doing the right things. Why would you have your all your assets in a place um, that is managed by uh, a group of academics who aren't really, um, I, I don't know, in tune uh, with the financial markets. And so I think that this whole negative event for the old world ends up over the next year, two years being very positive for the crypto world. So it's just my view. I know people won't agree with that, um, but I definitely see a transition. Yeah. So I made the I, transition for you here, Mark. I don't know if you <laughs> want to comment about, um, you know, we both have exposure to different companies in the space. I don't have any venture. Uh, I think the funding on the venture side in crypto, you're not gonna see 50 times revenue uh, fundings anymore. We invest largely in mid to late stage companies and most of our companies are pretty cashed up. You know, we might have one or two that get in trouble just because that's the nature of things out of our 18 investments. But a, a lot of these guys are still making money, uh, you know, still doing, I think quite well. Um, I worry a little more about the venture side where there is no revenue. Um, but Mark, you would have an eye, a better, closer eye on that than I do. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, venture capital activity is, is cyclical, right? And it, it makes sense. Uh, in the ebullient times, uh, money is plentiful. People flock to invest because they're looking at the past returns and lots of funds get raised and valuations rise. Founders start businesses. Some maybe have marginal product market fit or, you know, they're not a great execution, not great at execution. You know, the, the period Dan talked about 95 to 00 was amazing. 10,000 companies got formed. 10,000. I mean, it's just, it's mind numbing to think that many companies got formed uh, over a five-year period. And I used to say all the time, there are not 10,000 good management teams. Just full stop. Yeah. There just aren't. That's for right? sure. And so what happened? Over the next three years, 7,000 of them went away. 7,000 companies went away. Okay. The other 3,000, some went public, some did great, some got bought, you know, um, Amazon went down 94%, but then survived uh, and thrived. 
But what's interesting about that is in that dislocation where those 7,000 companies are going out of business, people are getting laid off, lose their jobs, people do some amazing things. And they're forced, right? They don't have a choice. They got to pay the mortgage. They got to, you know, buy food for their families. And so they're like, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to go start something of my own. And some of the best investments I've ever made in my career came in the teeth of the winter and the bear market and the downturn. And the problem with that is it's incredibly hard to raise money then. So there's a perfect inverse relation between ease of raising money and quality of investment opportunity. When it's super easy, when people are just throwing money at you, we all make investments that we probably should have been a little tougher on. When things are tight, oh man, there's just so many incredible opportunities, teams getting dislocated. You know, back to the to the 93 example, I remember this this like it was yesterday. There was bad recession, real estate was collapsing, and there was this little company uh, not even a company. It was a little project inside Bell Labs called Dense Wave Multiplexing. And this guy got laid off, literally got fired. And he said, I want to take my project with me. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Dense Wave Multiplexing? What the hell is that? Well, that's where you shine light through a prism, break it into colors, and each color transmits the same amount of data as white light. Pretty amazing. A company called Sienna. And you know, we invested in this little company. And uh, us and, and his, the only, the only venture capitalist that would invest in his seed round was no one. So he literally got funding from his retired third grade school teacher who put in 300K, all her life savings, turned in 300 million. I love that part. Um, but we and a few others finally invested and turned out to be this, this amazingly great company. Um, 2001 downturn, we invested in a startup airline. You can't start an airline in a downturn, in a recession. Mm. JetBlue turned out pretty well. And, and I think right now, uh, I was talking to a CEO this morning in London, amazing business opportunity, valuation just got cut in half, um, really good team, really good. So I'm with Dan that there'll be fewer great opportunities, um, but they'll be really, really great. Well, let me say one thing. I mean, 70% you said survived, I, I forgot that number. But look, there are whatever, 15,000 cryptocurrencies, uh, 99% probably are going to zero. Um, 100%. But that will, yeah, 99%. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, 100% agree with you right, that 90 that, something percent are going to zero. But that still leaves, what, 100 cryptocurrencies. And even that, uh, you know, is to, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, that certainly I won't be able to tell you which ones. Um, well, the slight course, difference, Dan, is that tokens, right? Utility tokens in particular are pre-seed stage crowdsourced venture capital. Right. Exactly. Right? With the negative that you don't get equity, you don't get debt, and you don't get a claim on cash flow. So right. it's a really bad structure. So the vast majority of those, look, pre-seed stage venture has a 97, 98% loss ratio to start. Okay. And everyone talks about the winners, like, oh, Steve right. Jobs started in his garage. Or, or Solana, look, was a dollar last January, went to 250. It's still at 35. So people are saying Solana is still up 35 times, times. from 18 months ago. 35 yeah. times. Like, yes. I didn't look at it where it is today. But 
I mean, I and could that go down to 10? I mean, why not? It's at 31 today. It still would be a 10 times, right? right? Ethereum was, you know, is at uh, 1,200, right? It last, uh, you know, 18 months ago, was at 300 or 500. Um, like, things are still up a lot. Um, I, you know, I understand people buy stuff at the wrong prices. Uh, people paid, uh, you know, people paid 50 to 80 times for many different companies uh, in the space that we looked at. Last year, I passed on over 100 companies. Right. Um, I was not willing to pay 30 to 100 times for, you know, you know all the names, Alchemy and Fireblocks and Block Demon, and these are great companies. These companies, are, I think, are gonna be around. You know, I can go on, FTX, but uh, paying those multiples uh, was, very, was nutty. And um, we Look, passed, and I know that, so many. you know, Mark, I know you passed on a lot of stuff uh, also. And so, you know, do, am, I, am I happy to see the valuations of some of these quality companies come in? If they're gonna go from 70 times revenue to 10 times revenue, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, we didn't pay more than 10 to 12 times revenue for any of the businesses that we bought, yeah. uh, all 18 of them. Will some of them go down? It's possible. Um, but I'm going to be, I mean, we're in a position now over the next six months to really buy distressed, discounted yeah. stock of the companies that we liked before, but yes. that we just couldn't buy. And, right. you know, I think what we're starting to see is, and I transition to this a little bit to get back into the crypto, is that, look, with Celsius coming undone and now Three Arrows, um, Three Arrows, I think, is a zero uh, from, I don't don't quote me on that, but, you know, that's the that's the, the talk out there. Mike Novogratz just said a few days ago, 70% of crypto hedge funds are going to go under, okay? They see a lot of flow at Galaxy. He doesn't throw that kind of number out there casually. I think that's right. And my thought about this, Mark, is that a liquid strategy for VC investments is absolutely the worst possible strategy out there. Yeah. Uh, if you want to participate in the long-term growth uh, that's happening in this world, right? You need to hold for five to 10 years, right? If you have monthly or quarterly liquidity in your fund and your long Done. tokens or long venture equity, I think honestly, you're done. Done. You agree? I don't I don't I hate to be so aggressive, but 30 years in money management, uh, I understand, you know, the the kinds of guys and funds over those years that have gotten into trouble a mismatch between your assets and your liabilities, liabilities, right? Your investors who are expecting you to make a zillion percent, right? Um, because maybe you're up a thousand percent last year and now, and I've heard already of some venture funds down 70, 80%, maybe you're still up from when you got in, maybe not if you right. got into the wrong time, but that is not a viable business model. And I have to say the reason I structured 10T the way I have, which is 10 year lockup in more developed companies in the space is because, okay, only because um, it's only those companies that I think are able to withstand 
that volatility and only that private equity long-term structure that can gain the benefits and sit yep. through the volatility. Do you want yep. to comment on that? I, I, if, if I could just uh, sum up the situation here, guys, and give one caveat, these are unfolding situations right now, right? Celsius, three arrows, capital, guys. Yeah, I'm we have no idea, basically. Right? And I just want to caveat and say nobody has any idea, right? Because public information hasn't really been released. So I just want to firmly say everything right. from here on we out. Know is, we're, inter we're entering the realm of speculation, yeah, but I'll, we do I'll, know. I mean, the, but I think, I think what is not speculation is that there will be quite a few liquid crypto hedge funds that go under. Right. So I think that I can, I don't know who they're going to be, but I think for sure that will happen. Um, I don't know, Mark, I, I should stop there. Well, look, I, I think part of the problem is in, in many cases, it, it reminds, everyone uses the analogy, like, like Novogratz yesterday said, oh, it reminds me of long-term capital. Eh, I don't know. Kind of, not, not really. I mean, long-term capital was a, was a, they applied too much. Well, it, well no, it is exactly like long-term capital in that long-term capital was sunk, not because they had bad strategies, but they had a mismatch of their assets and their liabilities. They used leverage that makes sense for convergence trading, right? We know with absolute certainty that in 365 days, a 30-year bond becomes a 29-year bond and the price falls five basis points. That is absolutely certain. You go from on the run to off the run. You can lever that up as much as you want, as long as you can hold it for 365 days without getting stopped out, you are good. 40 times leverage and merger ARB, bad plan, bad plan. And that's what sunk long-term capital. So that part, I, I don't disagree with when genius failed right there. And you know, look, I, I didn't get to take it with me. I wish I did, but I actually had a copy of the original J. Uh, what they call it, J, the part that the Enron partnership, the, the when when fast we talked Al about this, out, the fast yeah right. Fast out came out and he, he handed out this pitch deck. He came to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and, and we met and and we saved it and we we never did. We're like this doesn't make sense to us. Um, and I wish I would have been able to take it with me, but it's in a file drawer somewhere at, at University of North Carolina, and uh, one for the history books. But I think this period right now is uh, very much about um, leverage and the abuse of leverage and the and the misunderstanding of leverage. But I was going to say it's kind of like when, when people used to call Bernie Madoff a hedge fund problem. Two problems. No, no that hedge. was a direct fraud. No, no hedge and no fund, Dan. There was no hedge. There was no, no fund. He was he not made a, a trade manager. in 13 years. The whole years. thing was fraud. He, was he just had not a made a trade in 13 years, right? He would just transfer money from you know people's account to his account. So total fraud, not a hedge fund, but people wanted you to believe it was a hedge fund because they didn't like hedge funds. So the problem with, with the hedge funds in air quotes right now in, in crypto, we've, we've done this work, right? There were 600-ish, okay? Only about 50, give or take, round numbers, were above $40 million. In AUM. Wait, Mark, didn't Mike say there were not, Novo saying 1,900 hedge funds out there in crypto? Again, I, I, I think I that number I probably no the number went is. up. If I could, if I could add to that, we because we there are a lot of uh, hedge funds like, and that's literally single individual people who have made like five or ten million dollars, and they like technically register themselves as a hedge fund 
Like I, yeah. So is that the last thing? So what it was was literally, and so let's let's call it nineteen hundred. Uh, used to be six hundred, but whatever the number is, and so many, 80 percent of them were, and literally this this true story. Guy bought some drugs on Silk Road, <laughs> never sold the the Bitcoin. It went up a gazillion percent. He made five million bucks. His friend said, "Hey, do that for me." Well, it turns out there was no Silk Road. He couldn't do that again. So he tried to become a fund manager, turned the five into two in the last downturn, kind of stuck with it. And then it went back up to three and a half. And that's called a hedge fund. That's not a hedge fund. That's just some guy got lucky. You know, I think, guys, we've forgotten to talk about something very, very important here. What I think could be the best performing asset of the next six to 12 months, that is gold. Oh. And again, I have a gold uh, background and uh, people who listen to me in the last three years, I, I'm a Bitcoin plus gold guy. Um, I think this is a type of scenario where we could see gold go up and make new highs, uh, you know, certainly in up, you know, up to 2300 to 2500. Last year, it was the single most hated asset uh, it gave people a little bit of love this year and did what gold always do does, which is just as people were getting excited about it at around 1950, collapsed again. But this is the kind of environment where gold will start to sniff out before everyone that the Fed is done. And it's not today. It's not next month. It's not two months from now. But when we see that ISOM as Raul likes to talk about, you know, below 50, I don't know when that happens, or we have a 10 point drop in that, or we have a drop in the CPI from 8.7 to 6.2 in one month because things have completely vaporized, okay? Gold will be there beforehand. So if you wanna know when things will turn equity crypto, it's gonna be gold first, watch the gold, no one's long, everyone hates it, I think it is the only, and I've been saying this for five years, the only true hedge to the assets in the legacy system. So I don't think Bitcoin is a hedge. Bitcoin is its own thing. Uh, I don't think Bitcoin is an inflation hedge either. That whole narrative is silly. Uh, Bitcoin is, a, it is total, Bitcoin is a hedge to fiat debasement, okay? And that's what's going to happen again in, after this period of trouble that we're going to have over the next three, four, five months. Because, and I have a feeling, you know, we're entering a two, three, four, five year period of extreme volatility where the Fed overcompensates now with being too aggressive. And then six months from now, nine months from now, is going to overcompensate the other way, <laughs> being too easy again. And why? because this is the nature of humans to panic and to have fear. I mean, I, look, it took me 15 years at least before I didn't have panic or fear when I was losing huge amounts of money, okay? It took me 15 years to not feel ebullient when I just made zillions of dollars, right? And it, it takes a long time. And this world, it's not for civilians. I'm just telling you this. Guys like me and Mark, and certainly me, I've been was on the front lines working for some of the most aggressive, smartest, best performing guys who have ever lived in this world, okay? And it still takes 15 years 
to be able to manage yourself, to be able to be calm and rational in these extreme moments. So I'm just saying, you know, the Federal Reserve people who are not market practitioners, who do feel pressure and emotion and, you know, all have political things as well, uh, political pressure. I just think, you know, they're going to overcompensate. And I don't, I'll go out on a limb a little bit and say that some point next year, we're actually going to see uh, them buying treasury bonds again. Uh, QE or whatever you yeah. want to call it, yeah. you know, definitely, um, definitely. You know I just, it's just, it's just the, the nature of humanity. Uh, and that's again, one of the brilliant things about Bitcoin and why I've, I've said many times that I think it's one of the most important inventions of the last, you know, 50 to 80 years, maybe the most important financial innovation in, you know, who knows how long. Um, and so, and again, everything to me outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum are venture projects. Okay. I, I don't have the skill set. Uh, I'm not Andreessen, uh, you know, or Polychain or any of these guys who have all these computer, you know, coders, etc., who can figure out which chain is going to survive. I can't do that. Um, but those are all venture projects. Those people will make a lot of money um, if they're right. Um, I, you know, I, I, I just, we, we just don't know about that. And yeah. so the volatility that is, that the traditional world is now going to have, of course, gets amplified in the crypto world because such a big chunk of it is early stage pre-seed, like Mark said, um, you know, uh, you know, super, super, uh, you know, uh, highly volatile, but of course, you know, with, with the greatest possibility of return. Right. I've, I've got a question for you, actually, for I'd love both your opinions on this. So maybe one of those guys that I know you've worked with in the past, Dan, uh, Stan Druckenmiller, uh, recently did uh, John Collison interviewed him. It was a great interview. I highly recommend everyone listen to it. We can drop the link in the show notes. The way he described uh, the difference between Bitcoin and uh, gold, right, is there kind of two sides of the same trade, so to speak, right? Uh, they're both kind of a, a central bank, you know, currency debasement, but in a bear market, you want to own gold. In a bull market, you want to own Bitcoin. I, I'd be curious, uh, I, A, if, if you probably listened to that, if I'm summing that up correctly, and B, sort of what you think about that 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 thesis that he laid out. Well, I work with Stan, and he's very rarely wrong. Uh, he He's always very humble when he speaks publicly. Uh, but the reality is, is that uh, when he when he comes out and says something publicly, um, you know, uh, you know, his hit ratio of being right is very high. And, um, you know, I saw I saw that as well, of course, uh, working with him. I think that that's probably right. I would hate to, you know, have to stick to that specifically because there are lots of periods in between when we're not in a bull or in a clear bull or bear, um, you know, where we have consolidations. Um, but I mean, like broadly, if you had to step back, you, you could say that that was right. I don't know that that will always be right because I think that Bitcoin is something much bigger than gold. Gold to me is a hedge, as I said, for your assets <clears throat> uh, in your uh, traditional portfolio. Bitcoin in Ethereum, Bitcoin is programmable money. This is different. Gold is not programmable money. Um, you know, there. I think the world of NFTs, which just kicked off, is in the the first batter of the first inning, uh, is you know a huge innovation. So, 
all the different innovations coming off of uh, Satoshi's white paper um, and Bitcoin just make it to me much more. There's a part that part that's technical, the technical innovation injected into uh, money is much bigger than just gold. But yeah. from a trading perspective, yeah, I mean, Stan, as I said, very rarely wrong. Yeah, yeah but I here's the thing, right. you know, gold is the only asset that has uh, commodity and currency characteristics, right? Everything else, you're either commodity or currency. But gold, for 5,000 years, it's the only money. It's the only asset that exists in the absence of a liability. Now we have Bitcoin too, but but you know, for 5,000 years, it's the only money in the world. And what's interesting, over the last two years, right, since the Fed went on their, their crazy uh, money printing binge on the cult of Kelton advice, which is going to go down. Again, if, if the current policy mistakes go down to some of the worst ever, the people that listen to Stephanie Kelton will go down as the biggest idiots, I think, in, in the history of economics. So the cult of Kelton led to money supply expanding by roughly 50%, 5-0, over a two-year period, right? 256 years of the Republic, half the money ever created in those 256 years happened in two years. Guess what gold's done over the last two years? Up 45%. Perfect money store of value. Basically, you devalued the currency by 50%, gold goes up. Interestingly, Bitcoin over the same period is up twice as much. It's up 100%. Now, why is that? Well, it's more liquid. It's got a greater, I'll call it trader uh, clientele in the free float, right? If you think about boomer rocks versus uh, digital gold, you know, you ask, I, I talk about digital divide, right? Ask a, anyone over 35, who's your broker? Merrill Lynch, UBS, whoever. How much gold do you have? Three, 4%. How much Bitcoin do you have? Ugh, zero. It's a Ponzi scheme. Haven't you ever listened to Peter Schiff? How often use DeFi? What the hell's DeFi? Ask anyone under 35, who's your broker? What's a broker? I mean, I got a Robinhood account. How much gold do you have? Are you kidding me? Boomer rocks? Haven't you heard that guy Schiff? How much Bitcoin do you have? I don't want to talk about it. Why not? Because like a really big percentage of my net worth. I'm a little embarrassed. Okay. I often use DeFi every day. So there's just a divide. And so I agree with Dan, right? There's no question the Fed's going to have to reverse course. There's no question they're going to have to print money, just like Japan has had to print money. Yeah, for but it's time. unfortunate that we have to get to this because I don't, I think a more, you know, what is the answer? People will be like, okay. It's a more nuanced understanding of the future. And, you know, the Fed is a risk averse um, uh, entity and they're not willing to take risk <clears throat> to believe that the markets have priced, uh, have already destroyed enough liquidity that they don't need to be as aggressive here. And again, I referenced Greenspan in 95. Um, I think he, you know, he'd realized that he'd over tightened a little bit in 94 blew something up and inflation was still going up and said, look, guys, that it's over. Um, you know, he also recognized it a little too late, but maybe that's just where we're where we're going is that they have to see something blow up. Something has to give. But it is, blow, and this is the it is blowing up. And I yeah, got it this, is. It's already guys. It's a good point. I mean, these guys today, they're like, oh, look, you know, the world's still spinning. And like, 
Are Mark, you your point in the beginning, I want to stress this, that the mortgage-backed security market was no bid last week. That's all you have to know. The same thing happened in August 07. That's all you have to know. There's not enough liquidity out there. Uh, how do you know that? Because the, one of the most liquid markets in the world, there's no bid. I think Bitcoin and Ethereum have traded actually, you know, incredibly well without discontinuity. But it's so used to, they're so used to this. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know. But here's I, I the problem. You know, I, I hear these people talk about, oh, well, the dollar's still strong. I'm like, are you kidding me? The dollar's not strong. It's just that the euro and the yen, the yen, I mean, one of the great trades of, of the last 10 years was being short yen over the last year. I mean, it, it's just gotten absolutely Smoke. clobbered. And, and yet bonds, right? The ag index is down 14%. High yield bonds down another 2% today, today, now down 17 for the year. Long bonds down 30%, okay? Equities, you know, regular equities down 25, uh, 6% now after today. Tech stocks down almost 40. I mean, we're talking half of the tech wreck in 2001, 2002, and we might just be getting warmed up. And it's also the speed. That's the problem is this has happened. You know, all you have to look at is the, the stock market has had, is it the worst start to the year, or the second or third worst start worst. to the year worst. ever? Okay, ever. that's enough. Yes, I know it went up a lot the last two years, but that doesn't matter. Things, you know, people, it's not, it's not symmetric. People feel much worse, much quick, much, I mean, on a, on a drop that way. If you had a 40% drop, over three years, <clears throat> that's different. It happened in a matter of months. It's happening in a matter of months. And the markets move faster than people and economic data adjust. And that's really, you know, that's what macro guys, <clears throat> you know, that's what macro guys have focused on and traded for years and years. Yeah. Right? Reading the clues of the markets and guessing what that will mean about data coming in the future and being ahead of the central banks. Well, and Dan so, said something that, that I want to make sure everybody listens and, and rewind the tape and want <laughs> tape, rewind the, the, the podcast and, and listen to it again. Um, you know, Dan and I are, are the OMG. I mean, old. He doesn't look as old as I do, but but we're old, right? OMG. Neither one of you look hurt. And hey, he just looks so good. Um, but, you know, it's just amazing. And, and it's like just pisses me off. But um, the key is that it just means we've seen stuff and we're not dead. Right. Because that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger and you learn from it and you 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 figure out how to, to weather the next storm. But he said something earlier about the job of being a macro investor is not about looking at the past and saying, oh, yeah, that happened or ha happened past tense. It's what's going to happen six months out and the ability to imagine the unimaginable and to see around corners and to actually intuit as opposed to just stare at a screen all day and, and analyze current data is really, really important. And it's what separates the greats that Dan was fortunate enough to work at their elbow. You know, it's literally like being able to paint right next to Picasso, right? You would become a better painter if you stood next to Picasso and copied his brushstrokes. And, and, you know, eventually you got to paint your own stuff, but you would, you would become a better painter if you're around greatness. And so the cool thing about the internet is greatness is all around us. There are people 
who put out stuff for free, like we are right now, that is worth a lot of money. Not 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 because we're great, but just that we have studied well, twenty under years ago some of the greatest 10, people. 10, twenty years ago, you couldn't. There was no, you know, there was no Twitter. There was there's no the podcast universe was not really serious. Uh, it, it, you're right, Mark. It's all out there. Even guys like Stan out there um, at key moments. Um, you know, just the proliferation of information and ideas. I mean, Jim Chanos has a Twitter account. You can actually follow one of the greatest short sellers of all time or Mark Cahodes. I mean, these guys have really amazing insights and they're out there. Dan's out there. I mean, there are, there are real people who will share. And it's the thing that I like is it's instant curation because yep. the real problem today is there's just too much. And what to focus on, other than watching On the Margin every week, which you should. Um, <laughs> we do it for you. I, guys, I've, I've got a question, because I totally agree with you. And actually, I've got two of the greats online with me. So I want to extract some of this uh, from both of your brains and, and just ask you a question. So honestly, the line in that Drucket inter interview that stood out to me was, uh, in the, my 45 years as a CIO, I've never lived through a situation to which there is no historical analog. Meaning that this next period of time right, is pretty much unlike anything that we've seen in history. So basically what, what I love to, and you use this phrase, that new, a more nuanced future, uh, version of the future, Dan. Guys, like, what are you, what, what's your sort of, if you had to do like a base case for what happens is, are we entering some sort of, you, you know, you hear a lot of like 1929 that we're going to live through a depression or is the Fed going to pivot in six months and it's going to be QE again, like you guys were saying before. And then we just reset to a higher level of secular inflation and assets kind of adjust to that. Like what's your sort of working? Look, I, I think that the future? inflation, <clears throat> this, this um, maniacal focus on 2%, 3% for the last 30 years, uh, I think is, you know, I think is I, I thought for years and years was too low. It was in response to the 70s. All of the uh, Fed people, academics, everything that they did, even, you know, was was in response to not living through the 70s because the U.S. had a lost decade culturally. And so we lost a whole group of, you know, people who were not employed, tremendous volatility, and they saw inflation as the boogeyman. You know, Volcker was held up as the great guy. Uh, <clears throat> You know, look, um, no historical analog just means that there's no period exactly the same as that what we're going through today, but it rhymes with many, many different periods. And I would say that <clears throat> maybe part of the interesting part, if you look into the future, um, is that there's no historical analog potentially because we are going to have this shift into the digital asset ecosystem. So I would take the next step beyond that. I know Stan is not that, oh, I don't know anything, but I don't think he's that focused on Bitcoin or the DAE, digital asset ecosystem. I do see a transfer of wealth and money from the old world to the new world. Um, I do think, you know, that, <clears throat> sorry, that um, that's a world probably the only sort of truly, and I've said this before, truly functioning free market in the world. There's not been any intervention in the, the crypto markets and it's had much more volatility. It survived anti-fragile, super robust. I know it's down. I know it's lost a trillion, you know, whatever it is. It lose another three, 400 billion. It's gonna be fine. Okay, that is not the case with the old world. The old world is breaking right now. And if the Fed doesn't respond to true breakage, 
which unfortunately I think we might see in the next few months, then we, we do enter a sort of more diabolical long-term um, uh, you know, uh, stagnation. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, I just don't. I, they've been responsible before. Powell said he'll be flexible. He's, you know, we've all lived, guys our age and Powell's older, but we've all lived through, you know, a handful of long-terms, uh, long-term capital managements, liquidity crises. You know, you had Barry. I mean, we, we've lived through it already. There is a playbook to that. And yeah. the only thing is, I think what Stan's suggesting is that if we do get a collapse and there is an event and they come in and do QE again, it might lead to a greater level of inflation uh, than we've known in the past, Mike, as you said, we might reset to a higher level, which in my view is healthy. I think a 2% CPI is too low. That is not in equilibrium, right? We got down to two. And I think, you know, what did it do over the last 30 years? It negative interest rates in Germany for 10 years, negative rates in Japan and Switzerland for 10 years, negative real interest rates everywhere. The 2% focus is what partially caused the deflationary undertow that we've lived in in the last 20, 30 years. To me, three, four or 5%, I mean, not so crazy, um, really, and like not that damaging. Um, and well, like I think actually, given the level of debt that we have outstanding, and by the way, it's not gonna impact the dollar that much um, just because I think you know, I, I think other places, uh, you know, dollar is only dollar versus other currencies will will also be doing the same thing. So, yeah, I'm going to anyway. take the other side. Look, Sorry, you know, two, people, no, no, two people always have the same opinion. One is unnecessary. And Dan and I are friends. We we think alike. We but but and this is not against Dan. It's just I I have a much less sanguine view of where we're headed and I'm not wishing for it. It's like I, I did a tweet the other day, last Thursday, that you know the, the longer, and we talked about this on On the Margin the last two weeks, the longer we stayed at that 30,000 level, there was a big risk, a real risk, that we were going to break through it like November 2018 yeah, yeah. and drop to, to 15K. And I put that out there on Twitter and people were like, you're a fucking idiot. We hate you. Like, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm not wishing for it. I'm not even predicting it. I'm just telling you. That yeah, you know, but at this point, rest. like another 5,000 points. I mean, again, I- oh, No, I that doesn't matter. No, but my point is, is that's a generational buying opportunity. But my point here is, I, I do, and I believe that there is a reason for the deflationary world that we're living in. It's demographics and debt. Demo too bad demographics, too many old I people, that, yeah. plus excess debt, equals deflation, the killer Ds. And we are in a 90-year cycle. We've always been in a 90-year cycle. There was a depression in the 1840s. There was a depression in the 1930s. And unfortunately, there's going to be a depression in the 2020s. And I don't like saying it. I'm not wishing for it. I don't want it to happen. But there is no government agency powerful enough to stop it because of all the policy errors that lead that lead to it, but more importantly, the demographic and the debt problems that cause these deflationary busts. Okay, well, and I, what it means there, is you right. need crypto more than ever, you need Bitcoin more than ever to preserve your wealth from what's coming. And look, the greatest fortunes in America were created in the Great Depression, right? If you had liquidity. So what you wanna have 
is a lot of cash, like real cash, like cash and gold. Gold is good too. Um, although I, don't, I think gold's gonna continue to be spoofed by JP Morgan because it's very profitable for them. Um, so I would rather own Bitcoin and, and cash cash. But look, I'm not, I'm not wishing for it. I don't want it to happen, but I believe history rhymes. Guys, I, so I, one more small question here. I know we're running super low on time. Uh, on the one hand, I hear what you're saying, Mark. I, it seems every indicator, right, is that we've got more pain to go. On the other hand, right, and I was wrong. I actually want to put my hand up and say I was wrong a couple months ago when I was like, we didn't get the same blow off top. Maybe we don't deserve the same pain candle on the other side. Obviously, we deserved it. So I could be wrong about this too. But, you know, when I'm just looking at this, right, it's like every sign that you'd also want on a, you know, a bottom a bottom side, right? You've got uh, you've got magazine covers. You've got bears doing victory dances. You've got forced liquidations. You've got layoffs, bankruptcies. It's like everything that you'd want to I know, see. But this is this is more of a short-term comment. Like, could we be in the zone of a short-term bottom where we rally for a month or two because there's some shift, or let's say we get a dramatic drop in next month's CPI, or we get a bigger drop in the growth data? People will. You could have a big relief rally short-term. I think that that's very possible. I've got three or four indicators that are, you know, that on, on Bitcoin, that when you bought at these indicators at these moments, you've had a tremendous run. And so like, I think that's very possible. We are, there is an extreme in bear sentiment and in positioning, you're gonna get some liquidations. People are getting fired. Yes, absolutely. But I, I still think as long as the Fed has that posture of you know we're definitely doing another 50 75 and then there, there's more after that to me it's that's the disconnect between the underlying fundamentals so until yep. they just stop um and then we have to disc we're going to eventually try to discount the slower growth right and so that you know the market hasn't gotten to that yet so i i, I think short term you're absolutely right today yeah. In the next week, is it very possible? Next two weeks, I I do think that I wouldn't be I wouldn't be selling. Go here. back and look, Michael. Here's your yeah. here's your homework assignment, and for everybody listening, mm -hmm. go back and read the headlines from summer of 2001. After we okay. had the downturn in Q1, and everybody's like, oh, that's a blip. Everything's going to be fine. And then read about WorldCom. Read about Enron read about the breakage 2021 was not the bad year i mean 2001 was not the bad year that was only down 14. 20 2002 was the bad year yeah. that's when the breakage happens and as i said that was a garden variety recession we could i'm not saying we will but we could if the policy errors are as bad as dan says they are which i agree we could have the 90-year cycle and then Start reading the headline, you know, start reading the newspapers from the 1930s, sadly. But by the way, I mean, just to end this call, I, I do think if you're buying Bitcoin from 20 down to 15 or wherever it ends up going, if you're buying, uh, you know, a 10% uh, position every month for the next six months, you'll come back three, four, five years uh, and you'll have made multiples on your money. Um, and so I, you know, Mark called it a generational buying opportunity. Uh, I think that's probably right. So right there. 
Right there. Uh, Just do that. Just do that. You know, and I, I don't think you, you do need it all to at once. Do like Dan yeah, said. You, do it over six months. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's right. And but you know, to be fair to people who would say things against that, I I, I thought that at thirty thousand, and I still believe that at forty thousand, I think this is an asset you must have a long term view on, and you must purchase over a certain amount of time. You don't go in all. Uh, in once you do it over a year or two or whatever it is and you need a 10-year view you need yeah. you know eight to ten and you will make money on your purchase winter's half over we're past the solstice winter's half over we can see spring in the future but it's it's in the future i michael i i guys I, i've got i've got to run too guys thank you so much for this all right take care